How long should a man live? If you're Mr. Prescott, it's longer than normal. In fact, it's longer than anyone would believe. He has lived so long that he has to hide from the world. But he's about to have his secret revealed. In the curse, Albert Prescott is living a desperate life. Many people are afraid of dying, but Prescott is afraid of living. He is, after all, cursed. Let's begin our story. The Curse Chapter 1 Mr. Prescott was antisocial. Everyone at Parsons Retirement Home thought so. He kept to himself, rarely spoke to anyone unless he couldn't avoid it, and when he was in the complex, he was in his room with the door closed. His English accent proved to the other residents that he wasn't from the area. Early in the morning at daybreak, he would be found walking along the line of dense evergreens that grew along the eastern edge of the large yard that stretched away from the buildings of the Parsons facility. On the other side of the trees, there were Amish farms that went on for several miles. Opposite the property, there was a large red brick elementary school surrounded by an equally large lawn. The playground area was located behind the school. Ephrata Elementary was home to grades K through 4, and the middle school on the other side of it housed grades 5 through 8. The high school was a half mile down the road. Prescott walked in every kind of weather, rain or shine. It was as if he was searching for something. It was early June, and the schools were closed for the summer. Albert had no close friends. That was fine with him. He avoided small talk and found the dialogue of others to be boring. He preferred reading to mingling and appeared to have no family or outside friends because no one ever came to visit him. He had been at Parsons since the facility opened. He was of average height, slender, and his hair was worn long. His face was unwrinkled. He could have been anywhere from 50 to 70. No one knew his exact age. His hands were those of a scholar or man of leisure. Age had apparently been kind to him. Mr. Prescott said that he had been married late in life and that his wife had died of pneumonia years ago. When he had come to Parsons, he was asked what he had done before he retired. He said he was an anthropologist and that he had traveled the world, seeking ancient artifacts, digging in ruins, and writing papers and books. The people who came to Parsons were mostly women whose husbands had died. There were only a handful of men at the facility, but Albert avoided everyone. He'd lived in Egypt for many years. While there, he had grown a beard, traded in his western clothes for that of a Bedouin, and gone native in order to blend in. Prescott spoke passable Arabic, and he had convinced many that he was a native of Egypt. When he finally came to America, he remained off the grid. He had the money to live comfortably, and he had moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He bought an old but well-preserved house 
in the small historic community of Strasbourg, east of the city of Lancaster. Albert Prescott maintained his anonymity for years. When he sold his home and moved into Parsons' retirement home, he did so because he thought that the people of Strasbourg had begun to regard him strangely. He did not lack money. In fact, he had so much of it that he could have lived in luxury anywhere in the world. But his desire not to be noticed overshadowed every possible consideration. He had chosen Pennsylvania because of reasons that he never dared reveal to anyone. His quiet, untroubled life was based on a terrible lie. There are urban legends everywhere. Stories often take on a life of their own, and the tale of the disappearance of a young Pennsylvania anthropologist was discovered by a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania doing research for a paper. Helen Brown was looking at old archives in the library. She came across a newspaper article from the Philadelphia Bulletin detailing the disappearance of a doctoral student in anthropology named Richard Fenner. The young man had gone missing in Egypt, and his assumed death was attributed to foul play. What was intriguing was that his body was never found. His grieving family had traveled to Egypt to help with the search. Fenner had been in Cairo seeking to join the Howard Carter expedition in the Valley of the Kings. He had arrived in the city on March 20, 1923, and he carried documents attesting to his skills, along with a letter of recommendation from a distinguished professor of anthropology. There were photos in the article of Carter and others at the site of the discovery of King Tut's tomb and its fabulous treasures. Apparently, young Fenner never arrived at the site, having disappeared somewhere between the city and the excavation. The young man's presumed demise was a minor footnote in the story of the incredible find made by Carter and his benefactor, Lord Carnarvon. The death of Lord Carnarvon on March 25, 1923, gave rise to the legend of the curse of King Tut, later portrayed in movies. Lord Carnarvon was reported to have died from an infected mosquito bite. Helen Brown was fascinated with his story. What had happened to Richard Fenner? Where was his family located? Were his relatives still alive? She wanted to find out. Helen's boyfriend, Daniel Edmondson, was an FBI agent at the Philadelphia office. They had met at the home of a mutual friend in Society Hill at a party. She decided to discuss the story with him over lunch. He laughed and said, You can't be serious. First of all, talk about a cold case. Wow, you're talking about something that happened so long ago that there would be no DNA evidence that we could begin to find. And it happened in Egypt. I'm in the FBI, not the CIA. Does this Fenner have any relatives? Even if he does... Who would remember anything about this from back then? But aren't you just a little bit fascinated, Dan? An American is murdered on foreign soil. He's connected with the greatest 
Egyptian tomb discovery in history. There's the so-called Curse of King Tut's tomb that cost the lives of people involved. I think it's totally intriguing. How would you go about tracking down his relatives? Could you help me with this? The look on Dan's face was one of exasperation, but it turned to a smile when he looked at her. He'd been thinking about marriage, and he knew she was the one he wanted to spend his life with. So he took a deep breath. Okay, he said. I can do this much. I'll look into it, on my own time, of course. If I can trace his family members, I will let you know who, what, and where. Then you can take it from there. That's all I can promise. I don't expect to find anyone who would remember anything this many years later. But as long as you're intent on playing Nancy Drew, I'll do my best Sherlock Holmes. A busy month passed for Dan and Helen, and then her phone rang one Thursday night. Hi, I've got a break for two days. Are we going to see each other this weekend, Helen asked. I've found something, Helen. Found what? I found something about Richard Fenner. I found a relative of his. Oh, gee, I've been so busy I forgot about what I asked you to do. Who is the relative? I've been digging around, and it seems he has a niece still alive. He was 23 years old when he disappeared. She's the daughter of his older brother, Harold Fenner. She was five years old when he went missing. She's 99 years old now, lives in a nursing home in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. That's incredible, Dan. At that age, she may not even remember her own name, much less anything about her uncle Richard. The ball is in your court, sweetheart. My workload is nuts. Domestic threats are off the charts. I'm afraid you'll have to look into this on your own. How did you ever track her down, Dan? Doing a bad German accent, Dan said, We have always at the Bureau, Fräulein. Helen laughed. Okay, you did your part. Now I will do mine. Bye, Helen. I'll see you Saturday. Bye. Thanks again. A month went by. Helen had made some calls, arranged a contact, and drove to the Bellwood home for the aged in Doylestown. She arrived and entered the building. From its appearance, it had to have been built in the 1930s. Somehow, this seemed appropriate. Feeling a little guilty for identifying herself as a distant relative of Ms. Alicia Brooks, she confirmed that the woman's maiden name had been Fenner and was taken to a small but comfortable room by one of the people who worked there. She carried a bouquet of flowers. Alicia Brooks was seated in a wheelchair by the window. She looked up as the two women entered her room. She saw the flowers and smiled. Helen had used her real name when she made the contact. The old woman said, Helen, how good it is to meet you. Thank you for coming to see me. Please come in and sit with me. Helen was surprised by her response. The old lady's body might be shot, but there was nothing wrong with her mind. Helen thanked the orderly and asked if there was a vase available for the flowers. The woman said she would locate one and left the room, closing the door behind her. Helen turned to her host, 
and the woman indicated a nearby chair. Helen sat down. The smile had disappeared from Alicia Brooks' face. I have no living relatives anywhere. Who are you? And what do you want? If it's money you're after, I have none. I'm a ward of the state, Missy, she said. Helen felt herself blushing at the woman's words. Mrs. Brooks, I'm not here for money. I'm here for this. Helen took out a copy of the newspaper story and handed it to Alicia Brooks, who read through it and then looked up. There were tears in her eyes. He was my one and only uncle, and I adored him. I didn't understand all the things that happened at that time, but I have had more than enough years to think about it. The family tried to find him. My father even mortgaged our home to pay for the trip to Egypt. His parents went there and stayed for three months. It came to nothing. When the Depression came, my father lost everything. Life was hard then, harder than you could imagine. What's your interest in this? Why have you come here? I'm so sorry, Mrs. Brooks. I did not come here to bother you. I'm a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. My boyfriend is an FBI agent in Philadelphia. He located you. I found the article in some old archives. I wasn't sure if he would find a relative of your uncle, let alone someone who would remember anything at all about the case. That's why I came here. Do you recall anything about what you learned from your family at that time? It's so long ago, and I really think about it. I will be 100 years old on my next birthday. The curse of being that old is that everyone you ever knew or held dear is gone from your life. Sitting in this chair, well, I might as well be in prison. Richard's parents, my grandparents, did all they could to find him. They came home, exhausted from the experience, my grandmother died a few months later. I believe it was from a broken heart. You see, Miss Brown, Richard's life held such great promise. His parents were ordinary people with little money. My father, Harold, had achieved more than his parents, but Richard was a doctoral candidate. He was so bright. No one in our family had ever graduated from college or gone on from there. My grandfather was dead a year later. I believe Richard's death killed them both. My maternal grandparents had died years before that. I finished high school, but my education ended then. As I said, life was hard. When Richard disappeared, the light went out in the eyes of our family. I have never forgotten him. His warm smile, the way his smile made his eyes turn up, his wit, charm, and joy of life, he could make you feel alive and filled with hope just by walking into a room. He loved me. I was his only niece and only child. I loved him so. And now you are here, reminding me of that pain from long ago. Impulsively, Helen dropped from her chair to her knees and took the old woman's hands in her own. Mrs. Brooks, I never intended to bring you this pain again. That's the last thing I want to do. However, there's a mystery here. 
I'm not sure if it will ever be solved. If it could not be solved back then, I don't know if we can find a thread of evidence now. But I'd like to try. I would like your permission to see what I can find out. Richard was a graduate student. I am too. That was our only connection, but now that I have met you, well, such a terrible thing may have taken place long ago, but perhaps God may have planned our meeting. I will not promise you that truth will be found or that justice will be finally served, but you have my word that I will do my best to see if there's anything anyone can discover, even at this late date. Like Richard, I am an anthropologist. We are a tenacious bunch. I'm used to digging after facts. I don't give up easily, and besides, now that we've met, perhaps you could tolerate me in your life in the future. Yes, I came under false pretenses, but there was no other way I could see to justify your acceptance. I would like to be your friend, if not your distant relative. At that, Alicia Brooks smiled a great smile. Oh, my dear, that would mean so much to me. It is very lonely here. I would love to have a visitor. I'm sure you're very busy at school, but when you have time, please come to me and bring your boyfriend. What's his name? Daniel. He goes by Dan. I've never met anyone in the FBI. That would be interesting, too. Thank you so much, Mrs. Brooks. Please, call me Helen. Before I go, is there anything else you remember about your uncle's disappearance? The old woman sat still with her eyes closed for so long that Helen thought she might have fallen asleep. Finally, she said, I recall one more thing, but I'm not sure how it fits together. It may have nothing to do with my dear Richard. What is it, Mrs. Brooks? It's a name. What name? Prescott. Yes, Prescott. Is that a first or last name? I don't know. I'm not even sure I remember why it strikes me at this moment. It has some connection with Richard, but I cannot recall what it is. I'm sorry, but if I remember more, I will let you know immediately. Now I'm quite tired. This whole conversation has excited me and worn me out. Please, Helen, stay in touch with me. There's no one left in my life. It would be so good to have contact again, especially with someone your age. I have much to learn about this present time. Perhaps you could teach me about cell phones and computers. I know nothing about them. Helen rose to her feet. She leaned down and gave Alicia a kiss on the cheek. You have a new friend, she said. I will come again as soon as I can. My schedule in school is quite busy, but I will visit you again. Thank you for sharing your memories with me. I will see what I can find out, and I will contact you through the office here. If we can discover who Prescott is, I will let you know. I have to get back home now. Please get some rest. At that moment, the woman orderly opened the door. She had a glass vase in her hands. Sorry, I had to attend to other residents, but this should do the trick, she said. Thank you. I think the flowers will be perfect in it. Mrs. Brooks and I are distantly related. 
and I will be returning to see her from time to time. Helen placed the flowers in the vase. Is there somewhere I can get some water for them? The orderly said, I'll take care of it for you. Helen handed the vase and flowers to the woman, and she left the room. Helen turned back and smiled at Alicia Brooks. Well, Cousin Alicia, it's been so good meeting you. Have a pleasant afternoon. I will see you again as soon as I can. The old woman smiled. Thank you, Helen, but please don't wait too long. When one is your age, one has all the time in the world. But when you are my age, each minute that passes is that much closer to eternity. Helen laughed at the joke. I understand. I will say so long for now, but not goodbye. If I figure this out, I will let you know right away. If not, I will still come and visit you. I was raised by my grandparents. I know what love feels like, as well as loss. See you soon. With those words, Helen turned and went through